begin where, uh, with the question I mentioned this morning, all the way back in Exodus chapter 4. This was the very first question handed to me this morning, and uh, it's very, very important question, very significant passage. Exodus chapter 4, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the book of Exodus. Its very name tells you what the book is about. Moses leading uh, the people of God out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt, and their marvelous and miraculous exodus. The man that God chose to be their leader was Moses. And uh, with that in mind, it is a shocking passage in Exodus chapter 4, where we read in verse 24, And it came to pass on the way, this is Moses on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to kill him. And the the question is this, God sought to put Moses to death. What does this mean? Well, what it means is God sought to kill him. But the question really is why or what's going on here? And the answer to it is found in what follows. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone, this is Moses' wife, and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. That is, God let Moses go, let him live. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So what is going on here? Well, it's, this is a, really a fascinating passage, and in fact, it's, very, it's startling enough just to read it in English. But if you uh, translate it from Hebrew, it is even more startling. Because the wording here is very intense. And it, it in a sense, pictures God as, you know, you, you've seen someone who's, whose fury is rising up in their face. And they're just about to explode and, and you know, let it rip. Just really, uh, th- that's sort of the picture here. Uh, the picture of God extremely angry with Moses to the point of seeking to put him to death. Now the question is why, and the answer to the question is found in what follows when Moses' wife takes a sharp stone and circumcised her son. Now at first you might not make the connection, but any Jewish person reading this, uh, it would have been shocking. Now think about this. This was, circumcision was the sign of, of the covenant God made with Abraham and gave to Abraham and his descendants. It was the sign of God's covenant with them. Furthermore, not only was it the sign of the covenant, it was also something that Moses, the lawgiver, now we know that the law came from God, but Moses was called the lawgiver because he was the channel through whom the law of God came. So basically what you have, now try to think of the irony of this, what you have is the leader of God's people, who has a son not bearing the mark of the covenant of God, God's covenant with his people, which means Moses had not circumcised his son. And not only that, but the one who gave the law of God and stressed the importance of obedience to the law of God, not obeying the law of God himself and circumcising his son. I mean, I tried to think this afternoon as I was thinking through this, what would be a parallel? I can't even think of a parallel that would be this, this uh, bizarre that, that, that this would happen. It would almost be like, and I don't think this captures it, it almost like, you know, all of a sudden it comes out that John the baptizer had never been baptized. 
or something like that. I mean, you know, the guy that's known for a baptism of repentance, calling everybody to be baptized, saying, we're all sinners, we all need to repent, and John's never been baptized. Well, even that doesn't capture just the, the bizarre nature, the, the inappropriate nature of Moses not circumcising his son. And the only thing that averted his death was his wife stepping in. And, of course, you can hear her disgust at Moses not doing what he should have done with their son. And so that's, that's the deal here. That's what's going on. God was going to kill Moses because of his disobedience, the very man who gave the law of God, through whom the law of God came, and who emphasized the importance of obedience to the law of God, following every letter, doing everything God wanted, not having his son bear the mark or the sign of, covenant, of the covenant that God had made with the Jewish people. So when you put it in that context, you know, at first it may seem like, you know, this is, this is an overreaction of some kind. Or, no, this is, this is uh, the only thing that was uh, uh, out of line was not God's reaction, was Moses' unwillingness to do what he knew he should have done and to let it go that long. All right, next question. Let's turn from Exodus to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And verse 15 says, Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. That's the phrase the question is about. And here's the question. Our hearts as humans are deceitfully wicked, as shown in multiple places in the Bible. However, Romans 2.15 talks about how the law is written on our hearts. Do we listen to our hearts because the law is written on it, or are our hearts wicked? Well, the answer to your question is you don't listen to your heart. Uh, in the sense that, you know, that's a very common, that's a very common uh, phraseology today, very common thought. Just go with, listen to your heart, you know, go with your heart, etc. Uh, no, you don't follow your heart. Uh, and, and Romans 2 isn't suggesting that the law is on our hearts, therefore we know all of the law of God and that all we have to do is listen to our hearts and we can go with it. Paul makes it clear what he is talking about. That's not what he's describing. In the very next phrase in verse 15, their conscience also bearing witness. In this context, which is a context of condemnation actually, showing that men and women are condemned, whether Jew, Gentile, moralist, doesn't matter. All the human race is condemned. Paul's point here is not some positive thing necessarily, like the law of God is written on your heart, so you don't have to study the Bible. You can just kind of go with your heart, that type of thing. His point is, uh, people know, people know that they violate the law of God. People know they are sinners. Deep down, they know it because the conscience, the, the conscience that they have bears witness to the fact that they're sinners. And that's why, by the way, in talking with people, even if they're completely secular, you don't need to be hesitant to use the word of God. Some people think, well, if they've never been exposed to it and you introduce the Bible, they, they'll be completely lost. Not necessarily. The law of God is written in their hearts. You can appeal to the law of God, the Word of God, uh, not to say that they will understand everything. That they won't. But there is at least that much of a connection because of the conscience that God has put in everyone. Now, we understand that the conscience can be seared. We understand it can be dulled. But still, there is this inherent conscience in every man and woman with the law of God written on it. And Paul's point is that, that people know they have violated the law of God. And if, 
if they're willing to admit it, which they aren't always, they would have to acknowledge that they are guilty before God, which is the entire point in Romans 1, 2, and 3 to show that people are guilty before God. All right, next question is just a couple chapters over in Romans 4, uh, and it's uh, on several, several, a couple statements in Romans chapter 4. Uh, verse 3, that Abraham believed God, it was credited to him for righteousness. And then later in the chapter, it says uh, in verse 19, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. And then verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Here's the question. In Romans 4, it talks about how Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then later, this is alluded to, but the question doesn't ask it specifically. If Abraham was fully persuaded by God and trusted him completely, why did he sleep with Hagar, which would have been adultery? And I guess my answer is, it's a valid question. It's the same question I think that every one of us can turn around and face on ourselves. In other words, I don't know who asked this question, but I would say, all right, assuming you're a believer who knows God, who knows Christ, you love Christ, you, you, you believe the word of God. So I would say, uh, do you believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that there is no temptation which has taken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape? Do you really believe that? And my guess is you'd say, yes, I believe that. I fully believe that. Then why do you sin? Why do you make sinful choices? Why do I make sinful choices? It's uh, one of the things that, uh, the phrases I've used through the years a lot in talking with people is sin makes you stupid. It really does. And there's, sometimes there's just no explanation. You know, the, the explanation of why, you can't always give that. We just, we make, we make sinful choices. And Abraham's choice wasn't the right choice, but I don't know that we can answer it any more than we can answer why we do what we do sometimes and why we make the choices we make. When we say we, we are righteous before God, our faith in Christ has been credited us as righteousness and we're fully persuaded by God that what he said in his word is true and his promises are true and he will provide way of escape. And why do we choose to sin? It's not, it's, it's, it's not always an easy answer. All right, next question is back in Ezekiel 4. So go back to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4 mentions, trying to find the exact verse because it was just mentioned. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> beginning in verse 5. You can, I'm not going to read all of this because the question does do a good job of summarizing it. But here Ezekiel is given actually four signs or pictures of the coming siege against Jerusalem. And here's the question. The question says, Ezekiel 4 mentions 390 years of Israel's sin and 40 years of Judah's sin. To what specific time periods do these refer? And the answer to that question is, I don't think anyone knows. Uh, I was reading on this. I read several different things this afternoon on this. And uh, this is a, this was, I don't know, this is a passage I'd never really studied before. I've read it many times just in reading through the Bible, but I've never stopped to study it. So this afternoon when I was looking at it, I was very intrigued to find out that this is such a difficult passage that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, causes even more confusion because they amended the text instead of reading 390, they substitute 190 days. 
Because they're evidently trying to figure out, maybe they've got, they had some reason, well, 190 days fit, and they assumed that there was a textual error, and it wasn't 390, but 190. That even complicates the issue more. But what it does illustrate is that it's a problematic text in the sense that we just don't know exactly to what Ezekiel was referring. Now, as I mentioned, there are four signs here in this chapter. The first sign, verses 1 through 3, visualize the coming siege. The third and fourth signs in verses 9 through 17 and on into chapter 5 focused on the results of the siege. Therefore, this second sign here is also, it's almost certain because of the context, a reference to, in some way to the siege of Jerusalem. Now, as I was reading, scholars debate, well, is this uh, choosing the 390 uh, numbers, 390 and 40, are these representing things from the past or are they representing from the future? And scholars are divided over that. And so some would say, well, it's, they're trying to figure out to what does this fit or how can, you, you know, how can you correlate this to something in either Israel's history? Well, from that point, it'd be past, but, but from that point, future, now our past. All that to say this, uh, we are told specifically in verse 5, the 390 days correspond to the years of their sin. Not the years of their chastisement, the years of their sin. Uh, yet, no specific years can be determined with any certainty. If you look from that point in Israel's past or that point in future, there is no scholar I could find who could give anything definitive about how you, you're going to calculate the days. But while the details are unclear... The message is obvious. Babylon would lay siege to Jerusalem because of her sin. And in some way, the length of the siege would correspond to the years of her sin. Now, the person also asked this question. They say, um, you know, to what does this refer? There are only about 300 years between Jeroboam and 722 B.C. and about 120 more till Ezekiel's writing. So again, showing that nothing really fits or lines up that we can figure out to what he was referring. And then the final question also, how do these relate to Jeremiah's 490 years in which the land missed the Sabbath, 70 Sabbath years? And I don't think they correspond at all. No, nothing I read indicated any correspondence. It just doesn't match. Uh, they don't. The length of the siege would correspond to the years of Israel's sin, and that's all we can go with. Obviously, God knew exactly what he was referring to. The prophet did in all likelihood, and the people could figure it out. But it was related to the length of the siege corresponding to their sin. All right, turn over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is the famous passage in which Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. And in verse 25, Jesus said to Martha regarding her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And the question, someone is confused by the wording here. They say, he who believes in me, though he may die, isn't this, isn't this person, if they believe, then a Christian? And if they're a Christian, then verse 26 should apply. And verse 26 says, Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And it seems like a contradiction here. Well, it's not a contradiction because Jesus is referring to two things. First of all, verse 25, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He's acknowledging that if you believe in him, you still, that doesn't exempt you from physical death. 
But even if you die, you're going to live. You're going to be raised from the dead. And not only will you be raised from the dead, the reason why you'll be raised from the dead is because you're still alive. That is, the inner man, the soul, the spirit, the inner person is still alive. And then he goes on in verse 26, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That is, the person, the inner man, never dies. The inner man never ceases to exist. He's not denying physical death. There is no promise that if you're a Christian, you will never face physical death. So Jesus is just... Uh, clarifying what he had said in verse 25, he who believes in me, though he may die, though he dies physically, he will live. He will be resurrected and he will continue to live because the inner man never ceases to be, never ceases to live. So that's why he could say in verse 26, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Not negating or not denying the physical death, but saying the person who lives and believes in me will never die, though the body may die, the soul, the spirit will continue to live, and there will be a future resurrection. So verse 26 is just an expansion of verse 25 coming off of what Jesus had said in verse 25. No, no contradiction, though at first reading it could sound like that. All right, now a couple questions from some youngsters. We always have them every month, and they're very insightful. This one says, does a baby stay a baby in heaven? And uh, I would just answer the question by saying this. You, I, I don't think you can actually be dogmatic, but I think there is strong evidence that the answer is no. And what is the evidence? Well, we're not going to go through the entire chapter because you can do it. I'll just mention it. You can jot it down. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about our future resurrection bodies, one of the things, he says a number of things about our future bodies. One is they will be immortal. That means not subject to death. Another thing he says, they will be incorruptible. That means not subject to decay. Another thing he says is that our new bodies will be related to our old bodies. There's this relationship sort of like a seed. The seed form of our old bodies will be used to give us our new bodies. And he says a number of things about them. But one of the things he says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that our bodies will be like Christ's resurrection body. So if you look at Christ's resurrection body, uh, you can see it was immortal. It was incorruptible. Um, And so is Paul saying there, again, I'm not suggesting he is definitively saying this, but the implication is that if you die, let's say when you're 95, then when you get your new body, you're not going to be 95, right? I mean, you're not going to, you know, have gray hair and limp because of your bad knee and all of that. Your body's going to be perfect. It's going to be like Christ. So if we would conclude, and I think, you know, safely so, that a 99-year-old person's body is going to be made like Christ's, who was, you know, 30 to 33, then it's a safe assumption, and only assumption, that a baby's body would also be perfect age, mature age, not past mature and declining, not premature, but at the perfect mature age. So the implication, at least, of 1 Corinthians 15 is that all of us will have bodies like Christ's and that they will be at, at the optimum age or, or the, a mature, fully mature age, not elderly, but not... Uh, youngster or, or baby. That's the correlation that I think you can draw without, again, being dogmatic and saying absolutely. And then here's another question from a youngster. Let's turn over to Revelation 21 to answer this one. Actually, Revelation 21 and 22 gives us an answer. And the the question is this, uh, will there be a son in heaven? Now again, 
Scripture does not specifically say there will be no sun in the new heaven and the new earth. But the implication is strong because of Revelation 21-23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. Now that doesn't definitively say there won't be one. It just says there's no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it. There won't be any need. For the glory of God illuminated it. And then over in chapter 22, verse 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. You don't need the light of the sun. It doesn't say it won't be there. You don't need it. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So if you ask me my opinion, I would say I don't believe there will be a sun in the new heaven and the new earth. But the passages don't specifically state there won't be one, but rather they specifically state there won't be any need for their light or uh, brightness, etc. All right, next question is in Hebrews. So go back to the left to the book of Hebrews. Before James, First and Second Peter is the book of Hebrews. In chapter 6, a very famously difficult passage. Uh, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The question is, what makes it impossible to renew them to repentance? Well, the answer to that question depends on your take or your perspective of the book of Hebrews. The reason why I said this is a famously difficult passage is that there are many Bible scholars who would say that this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. I don't know if that's an overstatement or not, but it's certainly the, the evidence at least shows that it's a, a valid characterization of this. I remember years ago when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, uh, one summer when all the students were gone, I stayed for the summer. I stayed on campus, took some summer classes, worked, etc. And uh, I met a gentleman there who uh, was actually a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he was in Chicago for the summer working on his doctoral dissertation. So I engaged him in conversation, and that was fascinating to me to meet this guy working on his doctoral dissertation. That seemed like a lot of years away for me. And so anyway, I asked him, I said, well, what are you writing on? He said, I'm writing on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Well, I already knew the passage and knew its difficulty and knew the variety of views and commentaries out there. And if you, you want to consult them, you just start pulling off the shelf commentaries on Hebrews, and you'll find there's, there isn't commonality of thought here. So I said, oh, really, what's your view on Hebrews chapter 6? And uh, he said, well, I haven't formulated it yet because right now the stage I'm at in my doctoral dissertation is to present the various views and the plausibility of the views and, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses. I said, well, you know, what are you talking about? How many views? He said, 21 views. So 21 views on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. He said that were that are not bizarre. They're plausible views of Hebrews 6. Okay, so again, I, I don't know if there are that many that re are realistic, but I just say that to say this. Whatever your view of Hebrews 6, you certainly ought to hold it with humility because if this were an easy passage to, to interpret, there wouldn't be such diversity among godly, scholarly uh, commentators. So we're not talking about, again, you know, flaming liberals who wouldn't believe the Bible. We're talking talking about just in, in, in our camp or our circle. 
But I would say this, that the two main views, now there are a lot of views on Hebrews, and, and the, what prompts the view, different views on Hebrews, uh, what prompts those are the, are the five warning passages that are scattered throughout the book. If you've ever read Hebrews, and hopefully you have, it's a great book, um, you will notice that the writer writes and he's exhorting, etc., and then he stops and he gives a very serious warning. Five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. This may be the strongest of the five warning passages. And the question that confronts the interpreter is, to whom are these warning passages directed? Now, basically, you have two options, really, believers or unbelievers, right? I think that, I don't know if this is accurate, but I, I think that maybe the most common view among conservative scholars is that the warning passages are written to unbelievers. Unbelieving Jews who had sort of tasted, nibbled, experimented, if you will, with Christianity, had looked into it, but then they decided, no, I'm not going to embrace Jesus as my Messiah. I'm going to go back into Judaism. And the warning passages are saying, if you do that, you are damned and you have no other chance. That's one take on it. And if you can see just from reading it, if that's the way you take this passage, then you say, what makes it impossible to renew them to repentance? Well, what would make it impossible to renew them is that they had all the opportunities, sort of like the, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 12 committing the unpardonable sin. They had all the opportunity, all the evidence, looked at it all, said, no, no way. And so it's sort of uh, judicial blindness, judicial hardening. That's it. You had the opportunity. You walked away from your Messiah. That would be one take, but again, and variations off of that. The other take that you have, and it's the view that I would lean toward, is that the warning passages are not written to unbelievers, but are rather written to Jewish believers who have embraced Christ and have embraced the new covenant. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, etc. But what was happening is that because of persecution, they were tempted to go back under the old covenant where under Roman law, you could be a Jew and practice Judaism, but you couldn't practice Christianity. So in other words, it's a way to escape persecution. Just go back under Judaism for a while until the persecution dies out, and then you can just come back. You can repent again and come back to Christianity. And that, I think, was the temptation of the Jewish believers. And I think the warning passages are warning passages of strong judgment if you go back into Judaism and one of the reasons why there would be strong judgment is because in A.D. 70, God's judgment fell on Judaism. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And Josephus tells us 1.1 million Jews who identified with Judaism lost their lives in that war. And interestingly, three Jewish historians tell us, post-biblical, so they're not inspired, but three Jewish historians tell us that the recipients of this book uh, heeded the words of the writer of Hebrews, made their break with Judaism, fully identified with Jesus. When the war broke out, they had no connection to the temple or to Judaism, so they simply left Jerusalem, went over to the east side of the Jordan, waited out the war, and none of them lost their lives. So I think that the warning passages, and this one too, are a warning that if you go back into Judaism, don't think you can go back into it and wait for the the persecution to die down, and then you can just be renewed to repentance and come back to Christianity. No, you can't. It's impossible because you will face the judgment of God, and in this case, the judgment of God is death. So you can't just be renewed back to repentance. You won't have the opportunity. You'll be dead for identifying with Judaism. So that is my take. Again, I, not, I don't think it's the majority opinion. It's not a, 
it's not an extreme minority. In other words, it's not like I'm out on a limb somewhere and I'm the only guy who happens to believe that type of view. But I don't think I think probably the majority of commentators would take uh, the warning passages to the in the book of Hebrews as a reference to unbelievers. But those are your options, and you can wrestle it through from there. But in answer to your question, uh, why is it impossible? Well, one, it's either a judicial, it's God's judgment of blinding. It's it if you're an uh, unbeliever and you come all the way that way and you go back. Or if you're a believer, then it's more time-conditioned, and the reason you can't repent is because you're going to be dead. So you take your pick. And then the, he says, uh, when will you preach through Hebrews? Well, that is on the calendar. Uh, I just don't know exactly when. Um, I have uh, just looking the other day. I, first time for a long time I stopped to look at this and reflect on it. I thought there are six books of the New Testament I haven't preached through yet. Luke, Mark, we're in. But Luke, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, First uh, Timothy, Hebrews, and there's one other. can't remember which one it is now. So six of them. So Hebrews is one of the six, so it's definitely on the radar I won't know until we get closer to Mark if that's going to be the next one. Just pray about it when I get closer and see if I can sense which one to go into next of the six that we haven't covered. But Hebrews is on the calendar if I don't die or you don't die first, all right? All right, next question is on Hebrews also over in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And uh, the question is, I was wondering if you can go in, into more depth with Hebrews 13, 7 to 10, because I really don't get it. Hebrews 13, 7 to 10. Well, this is the last chapter, of course, as the, as the writer of Hebrews is winding down. He gives actually what seems to be a list of sort of bullet point, bullet point exhortations, uh, because he says in chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue uh, verse 2, don't forget to entertain strangers. Verse 3, remember prisoners. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. So he's, there's not a real, it's tough to find a common thread or theme through here. Just sort of bullet point exhortations as he's winding down. Verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who've spoken the word of God to you. This is similar to what he says in verse 17, obey those who rule over you, be submissive. Verse 8, he reminds them that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, that is the unchanging character of Jesus Christ. And then my guess is your question is more on verses 9 and 10 because they are not, uh, they are not easy for us as Gentiles to relate to. So look at verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have been profited, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, again, remember what I said. This book, regardless of how you take the warning passage, passages, this book is written to Jews. It's called Hebrews. It's written to Hebrews, and at least the majority of it is written to Christians. If not the warning passages, and if they are written to Christians, then all of it's written to Christian Jews. But at least the majority is written to Christian Jews. And so what he's saying here, and, and Christian Jews uh, are, are Jews who were being lured back into Judaism. And so he says here in verse 9, do not be carried about with various, doc, uh, various and strange doctrines. Well, specifically related to what? Well, it's obvious by the four for that it's doctrines related to food, dietary laws, which were a huge part of the Old Covenant. 
For it is good that the heart be established by grace. Uh, this is, we're, you're under new covenant. Now, it doesn't mean to imply that the old covenant didn't have any grace, because the old covenant has immense grace in it. But even John 1 says, the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You don't want to make that such a sharp contrast that you imply there's no grace or truth in the law, but there's clear distinction. Regardless of your theological position, whether you're covenant theologian, dispensational, you can't deny that there's a, there's a pretty significant distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And so the Old Covenant largely revolved around all of these dietary laws and Sabbath laws, etc. So the writer says, listen, don't get all caught up in that stuff. For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Now, especially this would be the case. You could, you could say under the Old Covenant that even then they distorted the dietary laws and made them different than what God intended. But under the New Covenant, it's a moot point. It's completely a moot point. The dietary laws are a non-issue. So the writer is saying, don't get caught up in all of that. Uh, remember, you're under the New Covenant, the covenant of grace. Don't get all preoccupied with all these things which really don't profit. It's not beneficial. And then he uses sort of an analogy because under the Old Covenant, their laws revolved again around the altar of sacrifice and all of that. And so he says this, just sort of using a word picture. And we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So again, just springboarding off this idea of foods, he's saying, listen, we, that is, those of us under the New Covenant have an altar which those who still are stuck under the Old Covenant have no right to participate in. You can't participate in the blessings of the New Covenant if you're going to stay stuck in the Old Covenant. And so again, this just fits with the whole idea of the book of Hebrews saying, one of the key words, by the way, in, in the book of Hebrews is the word better. Just read through the book and notice how many times the word better occurs. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than uh, the old covenant. He's better than the priesthood. He's better, better, better. Why would you go back to that when Jesus is better? And so this is just basically saying the same thing the writer has said throughout the book. Why would you go back and be preoccupied with all those dietary laws when Jesus is better? It's not going to profit you. We have an altar from which those who have served the tabernacle have no right to you. We have blessings that we can partake of under the new covenant that they can't as long as they stay locked into the old covenant. All right, next question says this. Uh, why do we as a church pass an offering plate during our services? I would guess that most people today give online or some other method rather than putting money in the plate. I ask this because on a couple of occasions when I have brought visitors to church, they tend to always put money in the plate. I think they feel a sense of obligation, even though a pastor will always say, please feel no obligation. I'm wondering if, uh, I'm wondering if the pouring of the, or the passing of the plate is merely a tradition or if there's biblical support for this practice. I'm sure there are many practical reasons for why we do this. Could there be a better way of collecting offering? Let me answer your last question first. Could there be a better way? Yes, possibly. Uh, there, possibly, and this is something that I know I have thought through. I believe a number of our elders have ta thought through. We haven't discussed it that much. I, I think we have, uh, I can remember some conversations more on the side. I can't remember if we ever actually discussed an elders meeting or not. We maybe have or maybe have not. But I know we've had conversations about it. So could there be a better way? Possibly there could. Um, and then the question, I'm wondering if, the, if passing the play is merely a tradition or if there's biblical support. Well, it's not merely a tradition. And I would say this. 
Now, the reason why we do pass an offering plate is because a major part of worship is giving to the Lord, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's a significant part of worship. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, when Paul gives instructions to the church at Corinth, he says, on the first day of the week, when you come together, that's when you should, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can go back and read 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when you come together, that's when you should give your offering to the Lord. Now, again, is that a legalistic commandment? Like, oh, no, if you forgot on Sunday and you bring a check by the church on Monday, you're in deep sin and you need to go to confession? No, no, no. that's not what we're talking about. But the point is, there is a pattern there that as a part of our worship on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, we give our gifts to the Lord. We not only pray to the Lord, and we pray to the Lord all the time, hopefully, but we not only pray to the Lord corporately, not only sing to the Lord corporately, not only study His Word corporately, we give to Him corporately. So there is some reason why we do it. Now, again, I wouldn't suggest that churches that have gone away from that for or out of sensitivity to unbelievers are doing anything wrong. I appreciate that, which is why I always say, please feel no obligation to put anything in the offering plate. The last thing I want is an offering plate being a barrier to the gospel with an unbeliever. So I'm not fighting for it or saying, oh, you have to do that. But I am saying that there is a reason behind it Uh, There is a a biblical reason behind it. And uh, since really, and and we should be sensitive to unbelievers, and I appreciate what you're saying. It's probably awkward if you bring an unbeliever and then they feel obligated. I certainly appreciate that, and probably most in here can relate to that. But I would also say that uh, our primary purpose for gathering, according to Scripture, is for the body to worship and be edified. So our focus, even though we never want to be insensitive to unbelievers, that really isn't our focus. Our gathering is for worship and edification. Our scattering is for evangelism. So if unbelievers come, that's phenomenal. It's great to invite them. But but there's a fine line between saying, well, we only are going to do what unbelievers are comfortable with or we won't do what unbelievers are uncomfortable with because though we, we love them and want to see them come to Christ, they're not the primary focus. So in answer to your question, it's certainly something worth thinking through. Now, regarding the giving, I have no idea, really. This raised an interesting question in my mind, and since I stay a hundred miles from giving, as far away from giving in our church as I can, I try to know as little about giving as I can in our church, because I don't want anything to do with that or know anything about it. I have no idea if more of our giving is online or some other way, or more is actually through offering play. I have no clue. So it would be good just to for the person asking this and others who are interested to find one of the deacons who would maybe have a better breakdown of that, but I have no clue what the percentage is or the, the distinction is. All right, next question says this, uh, do believers go straight to be with the Lord when they die? We have all heard the phrase to be absent from the body is to be, present, be at home with the Lord, which sounds like 2 Corinthians 5.8, but none of the translations I checked really say that in those words at least. Could you comment on this? Some believers think when you die, the next thing you hear is the trumpet. Yes, there are some believers who think that, and I think they are clearly wrong from Scripture because basically what they are saying, maybe if even they don't use this terminology, is that they believe in soul sleep. That is, you are asleep until the trumpet wakes you, and that's the first thing you hear. So you may be dead 50 years, 100 years, 
200 years or if you're, you know, like the Apostle Paul, you're dead 2,000 years. You don't know anything till you hear the trumpet. That's the doctrine of soul sleep. The Bible does not teach soul sleep. The soul does not sleep. 2 Corinthians 5.8 is a valid verse, by the way, that talks about that there are only two places you can be as a believer, in your body or with the Lord. Furthermore, in Philippians 1, Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He made it clear, I'm either going to stay here in my body or I'm going to leave my body and be with Christ. Not only that, you have in Revelation 6, John seen the souls of those who had been beheaded under the altar. They are there in heaven already as souls without bodies, but they are conscious, they are alert, they are awake. They're not in soul sleep. They are under the altar and they say, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? So those are just some of the passages uh, that give absolute assurance that, yes, in answer to your question, do believers go straight to be with the Lord when they die? Yes, just like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Not you'll sleep for quite a while until you hear the trumpet. Today you will be with me in paradise. All right, final question says this. On John Hagee's website, it says that there was a blood-red moon on the first day of Passover in 1492, which was the final year of the Spanish Inquisition, when Jews were expelled from Spain, and in 1948, when statehood was given to Israel, and in 1967, which was the Six-Day War. The next series of four blood moons occurs at Passover and Sukkot in 2014 and 2015. I'm sure you've heard this. This is a big thing in Christianity. Uh, He wrote a book and explores what these blood moons mean. He uses Joel 2 and Acts 2. Do you, underline you, think they mean anything? And my answer is I don't have any clue if they mean anything. I don't have a clue. I do know this. I didn't know this until someone else had asked about this. And uh, Mark, I'm going to one of our elders, mentioned to me, I wasn't aware of this, that one of the problems that with Christians jumping on this bandwagon of the blood moons and these four blood moons, that I think it was the first one in this series, or maybe the second one, couldn't even be seen from Israel. So if this is for Israel and they can't see them, it really makes no sense that this is a sign for Israel. So I I definitely put way less stock in them than so many I'm hearing write about it and talk about it. Now, could it mean something? Sure, it could mean something. I wouldn't stand up here and say it means absolutely nothing, but... You ask, do you think they mean anything? And my answer is, I don't have a clue if they mean anything. But I'm not sold on them meaning what a lot of Christians are saying they mean uh, when, when you realize that Israel can't even see, at least couldn't see, one of them. I don't know about all four of them. So, uh, and I know he does try to use Joel 2 and Acts 2, which you just have to work your way through there. And I think those passages aren't always interpreted and used accurately in trying to support that. But could they still mean something? Sure. I mean, anything can mean anything, right? So we don't know. All right, let's stand and close in prayer. Father, thanks for our time together this evening to probe your word and to uh, go to these various diverse topics. Thank you for the opportunity just to do this on a monthly basis to to, uh, sort of expand and and uh, wrestle through what people are wrestling through, maybe in their own Bible reading or a home Bible study or whatever it may be. And thank you for our time just to probe some of these issues tonight. Pray that you would help us to remember what is most needful and helpful for our own lives and our ministry to others. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.